Part 11. School is out. I dabbled in the education business back in the 80s, working a three-quarter time paraprofessional job at St. Paul's Highland Park High School. I had been coaching football for a few years and really enjoyed the kids. With career positions being scarce, unemployment was almost 10% at the time. I was doing freelance creative work and supplementing my portfolio as a bartender and umpire. Or, to cite one of Pop's lectures, I lacked specific intent. St. Paul Schools had created a new position in each high school library to establish a post-secondary resource center in support of overworked guidance counselors. I was toying with the idea of challenging my lack of intent with a return to college for a teaching certificate. The library seemed to be a good place to learn about big education, so I took the job. America's public schools are our greatest asset and institution. Back in 19th century Massachusetts, Horace Mann envisioned a model that would become a philosophical and functional extension of both our Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. One historian said of Mann, No one did more than he to establish in the minds of the American people the conception that education should be universal, non-sectarian, free, and that its aims should be social efficiency, civic virtue, and character, rather than mere learning or the advancement of sectarian ends. Americans held on to, perpetuated, and innovated these principles for about a hundred years till schools started to bloat with consolidation into a one-party cartel. I took the job in appreciation for the opportunity to work with kids on a daily basis. In between incredibly stupid actions and life choices, they'd show flashes of maturity, brilliance, and promise. I could relate to them. As it turned out, they taught me far more than whatever I left behind in that library. As one might imagine, work behind the scenes at a school is pretty much a cross-section of America. Lots of average people, some lazy, some angry and selfish. There's far too much wasteful administration. Parents are too detached. Teachers are not empowered. And many wallow in the union's guaranteed mud bath of protection. But our schools have the distinction to employ the most exceptional, selfless people in the nation for the lowest compensation. Thousands of brilliant minds take their bonuses through amateurized joy that may not arrive until they accidentally run into a thankful student 20 years after graduation. The kids make it worthwhile. They inspire and break your heart on a daily basis. That's why I didn't become a teacher. I was too emotional to leave it at school. I needed to save every kid, solve every problem, and celebrate every success with every kid. This wasn't going to happen. My passion for the daily interaction caught the cancer, and I drifted away to leave the career to one better suited. And she was. The woman who replaced me, Mrs. Levine, was a staple at the school for many years after my two-year flash in the pan. I have a fraction of the experiences that real teachers get, but retain fond memories of the unique and fascinating personalities. One, actually two, of my favorites were a pair of girls who could have been mistaken for identical twins, except they looked like the number 10 when they walked down the hall together. Livy was tall and pencil thin, and Nettie was short and round. They were wise and self-assured beyond their years, 
and dished out principles and fortitudes like a serious version of Laurel and Hardy. St. Paul's Lutheran activists were helping Hmong and Southeast Asian families reestablish in town, and I met Cheng, who was going to become a famous writer and tell the world of his family's arduous journey. Another young man couldn't wait to join the military, then returned to his homeland in a jet fighter to repay Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge for their atrocities. I worked with a gifted football player who tried to cheat on his ACT in order to qualify for an NCAA scholarship. He was humbled when he got caught, but still perplexed as to why a couple of wrong answers on a stupid test could keep him from playing college football. There was at least one 17-year-old girl who lived alone in an apartment and supported herself. Highland Park is a middle to upper income neighborhood with lots of white kids. The district's busing program in the 80s transformed the hallways into a demographic kaleidoscope. So in addition to the Hmong, there were black, brown, yellow, and Indian students. There were probably Native Americans too, but nobody gave them a thought. Gay wasn't a thing yet, but most of the kids were aware. This was just before people courageously started coming out and long before it turned into a fad and political lever. My favorite group was the bowling team. I was their coach despite the fact that my benchmark for personal success was a hundred pins. They needed an adult supervisor to be viable and the team captains approached me. I promised I couldn't add to their skills but they just said they needed a live body and that the pay per hour was almost three times my usual hourly rate. I'm in, I said. It was an eye-opener. These were geeky kids who were different, but then again the same, as the football jocks I was used to. The difference came in what the kids were intense about, the sameness in their net behavior. Our fan base was smaller than the chess teams, and I never saw a parent or guardian, but the competitors seemed to prefer it that way. Highland was home to the district's hearing impaired program, and we had two kids of that unique culture on the team, one named D. During a match at the old Skylane Bowling Center in Minneapolis, now the town hall lanes and brew pub, I started a sign language cheer for her by forming the letter D with my fingers and thrusting it in a silent chant. The sign language D forms a convenient your number one shape as well. Contrary to common misconception, people who are considered deaf have hearing impairments of vastly varied degrees. Most have some sense of hearing, and almost all can feel the vibrations of sound. So D could sense verbal encouragement, but the chant was too fun to pass up. The skilled bowlers who actually ran the team, and once jeered me for mandating participation of all students, happily joined in what became a key bonding moment for the club. The coaching invitation wasn't exactly the president of Alabama reaching out to Nick Saban. It came from one of my student aides, but me and Nick shared the same responsibility to toss in a life lesson here and there. I had a student aide for each classroom hour of the day. Getting to know their personal lives eventually led to the moments of pain that pretty much ended my teaching quest. I saw the incredible juxtaposition of lifestyles that came to work beside me five days a week and usually chalked them up to a personal that's life pathos until one day. Rachel, a senior 
and my fourth-hour aide was a gregarious girl of Jewish descent, whose father was a high-profile executive and whose family lived in a large home not far from school. Her eyes were red and puffy one Thursday, a condition that could mean a number of things in a high school kid. She had been crying, and as soon as I asked if she needed help with something, she started again. Her father had grounded her just because he was stupid, and just because she happened to roll in on Tuesday at midnight. Rather than take her medicine, she rebelled, and the method of her rebellion was guaranteed to exacerbate the situation. I was so mad at him, I took his credit card to the mall yesterday and spent $500, she said in a so-there tone. I instantly thought of the 71 Chevy truck with ample rust that I purchased for $350 and figured for $500 I could have got one with a spare tire. Her sad frustration turned to self-righteous anger. 10 o'clock, midnight, what's the big deal, she asked, then continued, I shouldn't have been grounded in the first place, so it's his fault. Rachel bounced around with justifications before asking if I had any ideas. She was in pain, the most common kind, disappointment within ourselves. She knew she was wrong and had doubled down in stupidity. I remember thinking about how money complicated but couldn't ease her pain, and sensed that even more than the actual punishment, she feared the inevitable disappointment from her father. Her anxiety was so great that Rachel slept only an hour the night before, and she said she couldn't eat. I told her she had to fess up, but that flew over her head, so I tried to lighten her spirit. Well, they're having that nasty meat and brown water over fake potatoes today anyway. She coughed out a slight laugh before leaving to join a friend and retell her woes. Aaron, a sophomore, was my fifth-hour aide. He wasn't big, but he was stout and had a personality that varied between sweet and staunchly determined. The dark-skinned young man bussed over to Highland Park. He and his mother lived in an apartment across town. His father had no profile. He was especially quiet that day, with the look of someone who had lost something and was racking their brain to remember where it was. When I asked him to alphabetize the cart of college catalogs, Aaron just nodded and went to work, rather than fire off his usual million questions. I was sitting at my desk doing paperwork, and noticed that he turned to look at me several times, as if to finally start his inquisition, but it never happened. When I'd raised my eyebrows to ask, what's up? He turned back to sorting books. As the hour came to an end, he stepped up and stood before me like a kid receiving a deserved detention. I raised my eyebrows again. Hey, uh, Mike, do you think you could loan me a dollar for lunch? Mom had to leave early this morning. I must have forgot to leave out my lunch money. His mother didn't forget. I knew he paid for his own lunches. He was broke and hungry for a plate of that starch. I did my best to mask the gut punch, and even though I only had four dollars in my wallet, and my lunch cost two bucks. I suddenly didn't care about the lack of a spare tire for my old truck. No problem, I said, and handed him a dollar before turning to a file cabinet behind me. Aaron and I reached a simultaneous repayment agreement in a mutually silent moment. We were both too proud to look the other in the eyes. 
Mine were tearing up, but I couldn't let him see me cry. He deserved to not be pitied. Plus, he didn't know the circumstance of incredible coincidence and stereotype, one that occurs all day, every day, in every corner of the world, but just enough out of sight so guys like me can still function with hope. Later, upon reflection of the day, I was thankful he trusted me enough to choke down his pride, and I marveled at the complexity and relativity of emotional pain. For Aaron's sake, I had to ask for repayment. Pay me back whenever, I said as I pretended to dig in the file cabinet. Yeah, yeah, thanks, he replied, then slid out into the kaleidoscope of kids headed to the cafeteria. Whenever is a pretty versatile financial repayment term. In this case, the debt, with interest, had already been settled.